All right, all right, all right. How's everybody doing today? God bless you this morning. It's good to see smiling faces. And um, as you make your way back to your seats, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles today to the Old Testament book of Nahum. Nahum. Um, some people pronounce it Nahum. Either, either one is correct. It's kind of like the word humble. Some people say humble, others say humble. Same word. So Nahum chapter 3. We're going to be reading from there this morning. This week, I was, uh, my wife and I were at Walgreens buying a few things there. And as I was checking out, uh, paying for my items, there was a young girl who was checking us out. Very nice young lady. And uh, she was uh, just checking us out. And she asked me, are you a rewards member? And I said, oh, yes, I am. So I entered my phone number on the keypad, and as she was checking our items one by one, she looked over to the side at the computer screen, and uh, my name popped up, and she looked at it, and she said, Hey, I said, yes. And then she kept on uh, checking us out, and, uh, and I said to her, Wow, you said that really well. Most people struggle with the Spanish pronunciation of my name. They'll read it in English, which is fine, no big deal. Uh, but... Um, you, you got that exactly right. And she says, oh, it's because I have an uncle by that name. I said, really? You do? How about that? I said, is he here in town? He says, no, uh, he lives in, in California. I said, well, I'll be. And then she says, and I have another uncle in California, and his name is Naum. I said, really? Hey, <laughs> and Naum? Who would have thought? Uh, and so that's who we're talking about today, Naum, Nahum, or Nahum. And I thought, how interesting, that's what I'm preaching about right now in a series. And so I got really excited about that. I don't know this young lady's name, but I may go back to Walgreens to go talk to her and ask her a few questions about her uncle, her two uncles. And so I thought maybe that's a confirmation. We're on the right track with this series. And we are finishing it up today, this, this series uh, titled Just Love. And I'm going to read uh, this time from Nahum chapter 3. Beginning with the first seven verses, and then we'll read some more verses later on from this chapter. So if you follow along in, in your Bibles, Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number. People stumbling over the corpses. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number. People stumbling over the corpses. Verse 4, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute. Alluring, the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? 
Where can I find anyone to comfort you? That's a pretty graphic language. As I said to you earlier in the series, this book of Nahum is known for having this very explicit, very graphic language to make the point that God is a God of holiness, but he's also a God of justice. And so that's what we're talking about today. Uh, as we conclude this series titled Just Love, based on the, in the book of uh, Nahum. This book, three chapters, this book doesn't tell us a lot, a, a lot about the prophet Nahum. Uh, all we know is that he was from a town named Elkosh. The beginning of chapter 1 tells us that he was an Elkoshite. And the scholars don't really know much about Elkosh, don't really know where it was. Some scholars think that it's the same town that in the New Testament was known as Capernaum. Uh, Caper meaning village of Nahum, Capernaum. And so maybe it is, maybe it's not, we don't know. Uh, because we just don't know a lot about, uh, about Nahum or about where he was from. But we do learn a lot about God in this book. And that's really what the emphasis is, is on. We learn a lot about God, things that maybe we don't really consider adequately enough. Uh, we don't really think about the other side uh, of God. And uh, so this is why this is a very important book for us, because in this book we learn that God is good, uh, but he's also just. We learn that God is a jealous God, not the, the attitude of jealousy that we as humans know, not the emotion of jealousy that we as humans know, because that's not a good emotion, but rather he's a jealous God because he's fiercely protective of his holiness. Fiercely protective of his holiness. And because he is holy and there's nobody like him, then he accepts no substitutes for him. He, he has no rivals, he has no equals, and he accepts no substitutes. He alone is God, he alone is holy, he alone is worthy of our praise, he alone is worthy of our lives being surrendered to him and our lives being lived for him. And we also learn in this book that he is the Lord of wrath. We don't often hear him described as the Lord of wrath, but he is the Lord of wrath. In other words, he will punish his enemies... Those that set themselves up in opposition to him, he'll punish them. We read in this book that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, thankfully, we also read in this book that he is slow to anger, which means that his anger is not out of control. We, at times, can, can allow our anger to get out of control. Has that ever happened to you? Where you have anger, maybe it's legitimate anger, but it's out of control. And uh, it would be horrible if God's anger was out of control because He's such a mighty and powerful God, then we'd have no chance of repentance. But because He is slow to anger, then uh, we, we are able to have an opportunity to repent because He doesn't want us to be His enemies. He doesn't want to be against us, so He gives us an opportunity to repent. So He... he uh, he, he punishes those that set themselves up in opposition to him, those that allow themselves to become his enemies, and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So then, uh, who are the guilty? Who are the guilty? Who are the enemies of God? I mean, if we know that he is the Lord of wrath, and he will punish his enemies, and will not leave the guilty unpunished, then we want to know 
who are the guilty, who are the enemies of God. And, and we're going to discuss that uh, today here in a few minutes. The final section of this book, chapter 3, that we're looking at today, book of Nahum, this section continues the, the emotion and the intensity of chapter 2. If you were here last week, we looked at chapter 2. And, and again, the graphic language, the, you know, the intense uh, emotions continue in chapter 3. But the focus turns now from the fact of judgment to the reasons for the judgment. The prophet shows us in this uh, section of his prophecy the, the spiritually depraved condition of the Ninevites. Who at one, at one time had been this prosperous city. They were haughty. They were, they were proud uh, but we're going to see today how far they had come from God, how far they had come away from a hundred years earlier when they repented after Jonah preached to them. They repented of their sin and, and God uh, stopped the judgment at that time. Uh, but now we're seeing that they're far from God. But I don't want us to misunderstand the wide ranging aspect of this book, because I think that it's not just a book about Nineveh. It's not just a book of, of, about the enemies of God in the Old Testament, but I think it's a book about us today, our culture, our country, our families, our own lives. I think we need to look at our own lives today and consider whether we have set ourselves up in opposition to God. I ask the questions, who are the guilty? Who are the guilty that God will not leave unpunished? I ask the question, who are the enemies of God? Let me give you this definition of, of an enemy of God, and then we'll, we'll consider this as we look at this chapter. Um, anyone who stands opposed to God and to God's ways in this world, or in his, his or her own life, becomes an enemy of God. An enemy of God is anyone who stands opposed to God, who stands opposed to God's ways, who stands opposed to God's word, Either in this world, in this culture, in this society, or in, our, in their own uh, individual lives. That's who an enemy of God is. If you live in opposition to God and in opposition to God's word, you make yourself an enemy of God. God doesn't want you to be his enemy. God wants you to be his friend. And God has called you His friend. He has given you an opportunity to know Him, to repent and to know Him. He doesn't want you to be His enemy because He knows what happens to His enemies. God doesn't want you to be opposed to Him. God wants to be for you, not against you. We sang this a while ago. Where God says, I'm for you, I'm not against you. But if you allow yourself to become an enemy of God, then God says, I'm against you now. Not because I want to be, but because you have placed yourself in opposition to me. If we don't surrender to God fully, if we don't look to God as our only source of joy, of fulfillment, of salvation, then we allow ourselves to become enemies of God. Remember that God is a jealous God who allows no rivals and who accepts no, or who has no rivals and accepts no substitutes. So when we try to live our life substituting something for God, the Bible calls this idolatry. And God, who is a jealous God, will not allow that to happen. He is the Lord of wrath who will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, we, we live in a world where, where uh, in the middle of this world, in, uh, this world, 
whose ways uh, are opposed to God. If you look at our culture, not just our culture today, but we can go back hundreds and thousands of years, uh, even to Bible times, to Old Testament times. We live in a world whose ways are opposed to God. We live in a world that is opposed to God and is opposed to God's word, is opposed to God's ways. That's a reality. Jesus said we're, we're in this world, but we're not of it because this world is a, is a system that is opposed to God. So if we embrace this world, if we embrace the, thought, the thoughts of this world, the mentality of this world, if we embrace the ways of this world, the systems of this world, if we allow our hearts and our lives to conform to this world, if we allow the world to squeeze us into its mold and we conform to it, instead of allowing God to transform us, then we allow ourselves to become enemies of God. James said in, in his letter, uh, general letter, general epistle, James 4.4, 4, he, he wrote this, You adulterous people, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. See how clear that is. Adulterous people, because we know that when a couple gets married, they make vows that they're going to love only each other and keep themselves only for each other. And if they were to break those vows, then that's adultery. And so this is what God is saying. If we think that we can love God but love the world, then the love of the Father is not in us. So he, he calls those people adulterous. You adulterous people. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You can't serve two masters. Or your allegiance and your loyalty and your passion will be for God completely. Or it's going to be for the world. Being a friend of the world... James says very clearly, being a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God. We find from the, learn from the Ninevites that being, being given to violence makes you an enemy of God. The violence that, that we're seeing in our culture, more and more violence, is actually a fulfillment of Scripture that said in the last days that violence would increase. That hate would Love would grow cold, hate would increase, violence will increase. Being given to violence makes you an enemy of God. Being given to immorality, being given to sensuality makes you an enemy of God. And when you make yourself an enemy of God, there is no escaping God's judgment. We may not see it now, we may not see it soon, we may think we're getting away with it. But except for complete repentance and turning away from from the world, turning away from sin, turning away from violence and immorality and sensuality and wickedness, rebellion, except for complete repentance, there is no escaping God's judgment. That's why God says in, in chapter 3, verse 5, I am against you. And if you recall last week in chapter 2, verse 13, he said it also. So twice in this prophecy, God says, I am against you. It's not, not that he wants to be against us, but... He's against those that have made themselves his enemies. So we're going to see how that played out in the, uh, in the city of Nineveh, the nation of Assyria. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was the most powerful empire in the world at this time. We're going to see how this played out. And we're going to learn today 
that the manner in which God judged Nineveh corresponded with the manner in which Nineveh sinned against God. The manner in which God judged Nineveh corresponded with the manner in which Nineveh sinned against God. So here are some of the things that we learn. First of all, when you become an enemy of God, your wickedness will shame you. When you become an enemy of God, your wickedness will shame you. Look at verse 4. Everything that happened to, to Nineveh was because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Which was a play on words because as I've said to you before, the name, the name Nahum means comfort. But there was no comfort here for, for Nineveh. But so, so first we read here that God said, I will lift your skirts over your face. Now what is, what is that about? That's obviously a metaphor. Not a literal thing that God was in. It was a metaphor. And the reason it's significant is because uh, in those days, uh, the punishment, the typical punishment for infidelity, for adultery, the typical punishment for prostitution was to expose the, the persons to nakedness publicly. That's a way that they were dealt with. Uh, if, they, if they were caught in prostitution, uh, infidelity, they would be exposed for all to see and for people to walk by and ridicule to make fun of because they knew exactly why this person was being exposed. The, the prostitute's nakedness would be put on display. And so God is saying Nineveh played the prostitute. Nineveh enticed many nations. They, they uh, deceived many nations. Uh, Judah included. In fact, uh, King Ahaz had looked to the Assyrians at, on one occasion for some help. And the Assyrians said, yeah, we'll, we'll help you. And uh, we'll, be glad, we'll be glad to help you. We'll come over. Well, they went over. They deceived them. And instead of helping them, they took them over. They attacked them. And they did that with many nations. They would offer help. They would make a promise of being an ally. And then they would turn on them. And so there were, there were deceivers. And uh, they, they had done men, much harm to many nations. And so now God is saying, you've played the prostitute. You've lured people in. And then you've turned against them. And, she, and he's got to say, now the, your nakedness as a prostitute is going to be put on public display, display for all the nations of the earth to see. So that Nineveh, Assyria, would be disgraced before all the nations of, of the world. So in this metaphor, the clothing that is removed, when we read that God says, I will lift your skirts over your face, is not only the fact that the nakedness would, would be exposed of the nation, but the nation would be stripped the way that a, a prostitute might 
actually uh, be taken care of or dealt with in those days, that the clothes would be stripped. And uh, in this metaphor, the clothing symbolizes all the outward trappings of Assyria's power. Assyria, you know, you looked at Assyria, you looked at Nineveh, they had palaces, they had gold, they had silver, they had fine art, that art had the greatest music, uh, you know, of the arts. They had great weapons. The, the weapons of their warfare were great. They were mighty. And so all those things were going to be stripped away. And everybody would notice that the once great city of Nineveh, who was filled with palaces, gold, silver, and the finest of everything, would be laid to waste. And then after doing that, the Lord would cast filth upon her. Filth. Upon her, so that this once arrogant prostitute would be made contemptible. When you cast filth on something, you just, if you see something with filth, you think, oh, this is awful, and you, you, you cover your nose, and it's not something you even want to see, something you, wanna, you don't want to smell. And so Nineveh would become a spectacle. Everybody would see Nineveh, their humiliation, their defilement. Former allies, even enemies. And, and God says, they're going to look at you and they're going to turn away. They're going to turn away in shock. They're going to turn away thinking, oh, this, this great city, look at its condition. We can't even look. We can't even look at what is going on. Last year, uh, I played basketball once or twice a week with some guys, mostly younger guys. There's a few of us older guys. And I do it for the cardio. I'm not great at it. I tell the guys, you know, I used to be able to dribble. I know you don't believe me, but I used to be able to dribble and shoot. Uh, but I was, uh, this, I actually dislocated a finger uh, twice within six months. The, the second time was pretty graphic. I mean, it was like my finger was almost at a 90-degree angle, not quite. And uh, when it happened, I was looking at it, and I remember saying this. I think I said it out loud. I said, oh, no, I can't believe this happened again. Then the second thing I said, who's here? Because well, there were a couple of guys that played with us. One of them still does. And he is a physical therapist at West Texas Rehab. And his specialty is a hand. He knows all the fingers and joints and tendons and everything about the hand. And uh, so I was hoping he was there. And he was. And he's the one who actually took care of it for me. But uh, it looked so bad that all the guys came over to look at it. And they did this. They looked at it. They went, oh. They turned away. I said, guys, you're a grown man. Come on, but they didn't even want to look at it. It looked so bad. And even my friend who, who fixed my finger for me, his name is Matt, great guy, Christian young man. And, and even he looked at it. He says, oh, he says, this is going to hurt. He told me, look the other way. So I looked the other way. And he popped it back into place. You know, he played around with it and he, he did a great job. But they wouldn't even look at my finger. It's just a finger. And they all just went, ah, oh, because it was so bad. But what God is describing here is something much, much worse where the nations would look at Nineveh just lay to waste and would turn away saying, oh, I can't believe this. This is disgusting what has happened to this city. No one would mourn the death of Nineveh, God said. No one would seek to comfort Nineveh in its hour of humiliation. And what Nahum is saying here is that the things which people are proud of in their sin will be used to shame them in their judgment. The things which people are proud of the, the things that they're proud of and they, they brag about in their sin 
Oh, let's go drinking. Oh, let's do this. Oh, I got this girl. I got this. You know, they just they're proud of their sin. Those are the things that God will use to shame them in their judgment because they were proud of what they did. They were proud of how they they deceive nations and they practice immorality. They practice prostitution. They practice all kinds of wickedness. And that's exactly what God used to judge them. He embarrassed them that way. Because when you become an enemy of God, your own wickedness will shame you. God will allow it. So I have to ask you this morning, what is it that's drawing you away from God? What is it that's tempting you to to walk further and further away from God? What is it that's keeping you from a full commitment to God, a, a passionate commitment solely to God? Because God is a jealous God. What is it? Because if you continue in that path, that's the same path that God will use to shame you in front of others. Instead of being proud of your achievements, you'll be shamed by them. Because when you become an enemy of God, your own wickedness will shame you. Secondly, we learn here that when you become an enemy of God, your rebellion will crush you. When you become an enemy of God, your rebellion will crush you. Look at verse 8. Look at Nahum 3, verse 8. Are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with water around her? The river was her defense, the waters her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces. Can you imagine that? Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for her nobles. And all her great men were put in chains. You too will become drunk and will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. So, what was Thebes? He says in verse 8, are you better than Thebes situated on the Nile? Well, Thebes was an ancient Egyptian city. It was one of the one of two capital cities of of Egypt. It was a uh, it was a fortified city. It was a strong city. It was a beautiful city. In fact, it was considered one of the wonders uh, of the ancient world. Not one of the. It didn't end up being one of the uh, eight. One, oh, sorry, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There's only seven. Uh, it wasn't one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but it was considered a a wonder nonetheless. Because it was so uh, beautiful and so strong. It was fortified. It was built on the banks of the Nile River, both sides of the Nile River. Uh, And it was looked upon with great admiration by the people of the world. It had a strong defense. It had uh, powerful allies. Yet, God says, it was destroyed. And uh, so he's saying, look, if, if this city of Thebes was destroyed at the time. It was the most powerful, the most beautiful, most admired city. And if it was destroyed, what can you expect for yourselves? Are you better than Thebes? God is asking. And look at look again at these verses we just read. The, the result of her uh, defeat. Verse 10, she was, yet she was taken captive, went into exile. Her infants, this is how bad the destruction of Thebes was. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for, their, for her nobles, and all her great men were put in chains. Now, who would do this? 
to babies. The destruction was so overwhelming of this city. It was so overwhelming that not only the, the men were put in chains, the nobles, the leaders, but everybody was killed, including babies. And not just killed, you know, maybe suffocated, but they were dashed to, uh, to pieces uh, on, on the ground, on the stones, at every street corner. Who would do that? What kind of evil people would commit those atrocities against the people of Thebes? Well, you want to take a guess? It was actually the Assyrians. It was actually the Ninevites. And now God is reminding them that what they did to others would be returned to them. They would be judged in much the same manner in which they sinned. And we see that at the end of that chapter, but it really begins in verse 2. Look at verse 2. We read this earlier. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. That's what happened to Nineveh. They were judged in the same manner which they had sinned against others. And let that be a reminder to us that we also, if we allow ourselves to become enemies of God, will be judged in the same manner in which we sin against God. If we completely rebel against God, and you know there are people that are in complete rebellion against God right now. We see it that they're getting a lot of attention in our culture. If we completely rebel against God, if we proudly declare that we don't need God, our own rebellion will crush us and defeat us. And let me tell you, there is nothing sadder, there's nothing sadder than to see a once proud man or woman crushed and whimpering under the pain of their own rebellion. God will allow it because God is a holy God and He will accept no substitutes because He has no rivals. So the question for us today is what, what are we trusting in for our fulfillment? Are we, are we trying to live our life outside of God completely? Is our rebellion against God, is our rebellion against God being displayed in the fact that we just get up and go on our way and never look to God for help, never look to God, haven't really surrendered our life completely to God? Are we trusting in our in our beauty, in our handsome looks, in our strength, physical strength, in our, in our ability, at our job. What is it you're trusting in for your fulfillment? In what area, in what area are you leaving God out? Are you leaving God out in a career? It's going to come back to, to hurt you. That career that you're so proud of and that, that has elevated you will bring shame and will crush you. The emotional pain of losing a career will be great if you leave God out. Are you leaving God out of a relationship? Are you leaving God out of your finances? In what area are you leaving God out? Because that is rebellion and your rebellion will come back to crush you. Paul wrote to the Galatians that God will not be mocked. He said whatever a person sows, that's what he's going to reap. And if you reap rebellion, then you're going to if you sow rebellion, you're going to reap the consequences of rebellion. If you sow wickedness, you're going to reap the consequences of wickedness. If you sow immorality, you're going to reap the consequences of immorality. God will not be mocked. 
Because God is a holy God. He's a just God. He's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. And so this is what happened to the Assyrians. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your young people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you, clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Wow. Think about that. First of all, he says in verse 18, there's no defense against God's judgment if we don't repent. There's no escape. There's no defense. Nothing can heal you, he says in verse 19. Your wound is fatal. That's it. If you don't repent, nothing can heal you. If you don't repent, your wound is fatal. And then verse nine, at the end of verse 19, the second part, this part here that says, All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. Because the cruel people, the enemies of God, when they fall, nobody mourns them. Nobody mourns the evil, right? Nobody, nobody mourns the cruel people. I mean, their, their demise, their fall is such a relief to people that they harm, that they can't help but to feel the strange sense of, of joy. And so he says, all who hear the news about your fall, they're going to clap their hands. And if we allow ourselves to become enemies of God, when the fall comes, if we don't repent, when the pain comes, no one's going to be around to mourn us. No one's going to be around to mourn us because nobody, nobody mourns the cruel and the evil. It makes me think of a story that I heard many years ago by Chuck Swindoll. And uh, um, this is going way back when I heard him tell this story. But he told the story about there were two men who lived in a the city. They were brothers. These two men were brothers. And they were well known in this, in this city because they were businessmen and they had made a lot of money. They were very rich, extremely rich. Uh, but these two brothers were very evil and very cruel men. The way they made their money was by cheating people. They made lots of money by cheating people. They, they mistreated their employees. They paid them a very low wage and they mistreated, they mistreated them. And, and uh, the, the poor people were there because they had nowhere else to work. But they were terrible employers. They mistreated their families terribly. They, cheated, they both cheated on their wives multiple times. Everybody knew about these men. They knew how, how evil and how cruel they were. They knew everything about them. Well, one, one day, one of the two brothers died. He passed away. And so people were like, well, he's, he's dead. You know, there was a little bit of a joy there from some joy from some of the people. But uh, the, the living brother, the, the brother was still alive, came to the pastor of the church where they were going to hold the the funeral service, and he, he told the pastor, I want you to say good things about my brother. Well, the pastor knew this man. He had been an evil man, a cruel man. But the living brother said, look, I'll give the church $500,000, half a million dollars. I'll give the church half a million dollars if you'll say that my brother was a saint. So the pastor thought, well, that's a lot of money. We could use this money. Uh, we need a new building, and this would help. So he, he told the, the man, okay, I'll do it. So the brother wrote out the check, gave it to the pastor. The pastor went right to the bank and deposited it. 
the bank, uh, the check in the bank. And the next, the next day, when it was time for the service, people were there. And the pastor stood up, and the, the body of the deceased man, the, this evil, cruel man, was lying in front. And, and his brother was off to the side looking at the pastor, like, remember the check I wrote to you? Remember your promise? So the pastor was like, yeah, okay, I remember. And so he began to speak. And he began to speak about this deceased man. And he said, this man here was an evil man. He was a cruel man. He cheated people at his work. He became rich by cheating people. He cheated his, uh, on his own wife. He had multiple affairs. He was cruel to his family. He was an evil man, he said. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. So he kept his word. He kept his word. He said he was a saint and he kept the check. Because people don't mourn the evil and the cruel. They're seldom mourned. This is why we don't want to be found in that group of people who place ourselves against God. Let me finish with this thought and then we'll pray. This has been a, a series, a, uh, a study, not only on this part of God's nature that we often overlook, but this has been a warning to us. We spoke about the holiness of God. We spoke about the goodness of God. And, and God is good. I wanted to establish that and you know, the prophecy establishes that. And I wanted to make sure we understood that before we talked last week about his warning and today about his judgment. Because this book is a warning to us. And I believe what this book should do and this prophecy should do, it should drive us to the cross of Jesus. Because think about this. It's, it's at the cross of Jesus where we see God's perfect combination of love and justice. It's at the cross where we see God's just love. It's a combination of justice and love. Because it's at the cross where he poured out, poured out his wrath. God, the Lord of wrath, poured out his wrath against sin on Jesus. But it's also the place where we see his love evidenced in the way that Jesus willingly laid down his life for our sins. He willingly received the punishment that we deserved. We were the enemies of God. And we deserved the punishment that Jesus took on that cross. But he took that so we could be set free. So on the cross, we see that just love. We see that justice and that love. That justice and that mercy. And so what we need to do today, we need to go back to the cross. Go to Jesus Repent of our sins. Trust in His free gift of salvation. Trust in in His gift of salvation. Not for a moment, not for a season, but for a lifetime. See, the Assyrians, remember the, the, the Assyrians and Ninevites specifically trusted in God for a season. When Jonah came and told them, repent or judgment will come, they believed them, they repented, they trusted in God. But a hundred years later... Hundred years later, they forgot and they went back to their sin. This is not the kind of trust. This is not the kind of following God that we want to practice. We want to practice trusting in God, 
Not for a moment, not for a season, but for a lifetime, fully and forever. And I believe that that's what God is calling us to do today. Would you bow for prayer? Father, we're so grateful that you have given us the opportunity to go through this book. And Lord, I don't pretend that we've covered every thought or every principle. I don't pretend that I've done a great job in teaching this book. Father, I've sought your face and I've asked you to help me. And I, I do believe that maybe this is just a start for us to understand this part of your character that we often neglect, we often want to ignore. And there is no doubt, Father, that today you're calling us to be fully surrendered to you because you are a holy God. And because you have no rivals, you accept no substitutes. Forgive us, dear God, for those times that we, we try to be a friend of the world while we were also trying to be a follower and, and a servant of the Almighty God. Forgive us because now we know we, we've been reminded that it's not possible to do. So today I pray in our time of, of response here that we might be able to approach you and ask you, forgive my sins. Cleanse my life, Lord. Cleanse my life. Let this be the start of a new season for me. A season of total surrender and complete commitment to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.